Good morning. My name is Pastor Nate. It's been a great day of worshiping God and hearing about what God has done in people's lives. Let us continue to worship Him through the preaching of His Word. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to uh, Acts chapter 11 as we continue on in our series. And as you turn there, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the uh, chair in front of you somewhere. Um, and we'll prob- I think it's five, page 535 is where we're at in that Bible. And as you turn there, let me uh, ask you this. You ever hear that statement where famous people come along and they say, hey, I'm just like you. I put my pants on just like you, one leg at a time. My sarcastic comment back to that answer is always this. Well, your pants are gold-laden and mine are maybe cotton. You know, that's just the reality of it. They're not really that ordinary, at least in my mind. But not too long ago, I was reading, actually a while ago now, I was reading a book about someone who was ordinary. His name was Tom Carson. And Tom Carson was a pastor, a pastor and a church planter, a pioneering church planter in this province called Quebec in Canada back in the 70s. Now, this book was written by his son called named D.A. Carson. And the title of the book was called this, An Ordinary Pastor, The Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. And I thought it was a great testimony of a son to a father. An ordinary pastor ministering in Quebec in the 70s during actually a brutal time for anybody who was a Baptist minister. Believe it or not, in Canada, there have been pastors imprisoned during the 20th century, and it was in Quebec during the 70s. And it's an amazing thing, right? An ordinary pastor, church planting during this hard time. And during that time, we saw spectacular growth and revival that was in Quebec, all because of an ordinary man who faithfully preached the word of God. He did put his pants on just like me. A man devoted to the Lord's word, seeking to be faithful and obedient. And as we're in Acts chapter 11, we're going to see... examples of ordinary people. We have just finished off looking at Peter's report to the church. Peter had just gone and had a conversation with a man named Cornelius, a Gentile, which was a big no-no, but how God's grace was being poured out on these people. And he has just reported back to this church. And now we see the outflow of what God continues to do as he continues to increase his word throughout the whole known world by using ordinary people. Just ordinary people seeking to be faithful and obedient. So in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 30, the word of the Lord says this. The big numbers are the chapters and the little ones are the verses. So we're in chapter 11, verse 19, and it says this. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, who uh, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the reports of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great man, 
Uh, sorry, and, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with him with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and, on that, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirits that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity we have to continue to worship you. I pray that you give us ears to hear and an attitudes to make much of you as we listen to what your word has to say. Lord, we want you to be glorified as you already have been. So, Lord, I want to speak of you, and I want to praise you and praise your name. And, Lord, I cannot do this on my own, so won't you make this turn out well? By your Spirit, help me to preach this sermon with necessary power and appropriate affection. Lord, please use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. So in verses 19 to 21, we see an evangelizing church. In verse 19, now those who were scattered, as Luke, who writes Acts, says, the church has been scattered. They were people who were meeting in the temple at one point and now are not meeting there anymore. These might have been the same people we saw in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that met together and broke bread together and, and learned together and had fellowship together. But they were now scattered because of persecution. And I think it's important to answer the question, what is persecution? Persecution is the mistreatment or hostility that is directed to people who are Christians because of their faith in Jesus Christ. In this context, it can look like physical violence or social exclusion or discrimination or verbal abuse. But here's the point. It is the natural consequence of following Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Bible teaches that Christians will face persecution and suffering for their faith. We see that in 2 Timothy 3. And that it is a sign of their faithfulness to God. We see that in Matthew 5. So persecution as an, is an opportunity to show the Christian's love for God and to witness to the truth of the gospel. And right here we see that. As the church is being persecuted, their love for God is shown even more, and they begin to witness even more. It's unstoppable. Now, don't hear me say that this isn't a hard thing for this church to go through, for these people to go through, because persecution is difficult and painful, because that's why we pray for the church around the world that is being persecuted. We pray for ourselves whenever that may come as well, and each other. But it's during those times that we emphasize the importance of relying on God's grace and being reminded daily of the gospel and strength to endure the persecution and to remain faithful to Christ. And as Luke continues on, he tells us why this great dispersion has happened. It's because it happened because of Stephen. If we remember back to Acts chapter 7, Stephen was the first martyr of the Christian church. He was a man who was preaching the gospel and was arrested and was later stoned for preaching the gospel. 
And we see how the church begins to continue to grow. And the people from Jerusalem begin to travel as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. See, Jerusalem is this central point, and the church begins to grow and explode. I think of, you know, you're walking on uh, some path somewhere, and you see this wonderful calm pond, and if you have children, inevitably there's going to be a rock thrown into that nice calm pond, right? But what do you see? The pond gets thrown in, and you see the ripples, and it continues to grow until it hits the edge, the gospel is being preached, and we will see how big the rock, the, how big a rock the gospel is, as the word of the Lord continues to increase, not just from Jerusalem, but to Judea, done, Samaria, done, and now to the ends of the earth. A man put it this way, Holcomb put it this way, the persecution following Stephen's death continues to have the opposite of its intended effects. As God uses it to spread his gospel abroad, the triumphant march of the gospel expands to the Gentile city of Antioch as it becomes clear that the way is not merely a Jewish sect, but a multi-ethnic work of God. It's at this time that we see the gospel spreading to the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Not just some small backwater town, This was a major town, a major city. This was where the Roman governor of Syria would have sat and and had government. It was a major place of military importance. And I love what this is is a picture of, of how we see the hand of God at work in using the city as a strategic importance of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. See, nothing can stop the word of the Lord from increasing. And I think living in this life now, it can be hard to see that God is in control. It can be hard to believe that God will use all things for our good and his glory. And this is especially hard when we define our good by how comfortable we live, rather than how much more we're like Christ. But I want you to see this fact. The church at Antioch arises in direct connection to the persecution following Stephen's death. And as I think about this, as a man who is being stoned, which I'm pretty sure is not a pleasant thing to go through, okay? You know, you've been hit by a rock, one, that hurts. Now, being pelted with a bunch until you're dead hurts a lot, And I think if he would be able to look back at that moment, he would say it's all worth it for more people knowing Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. See, here we see that God is good all the time. It's not based on our circumstances that defines God's goodness, but it's on his very character. And as we see the word of the Lord beginning to increase, as God uses this horrific thing of persecution to push his people out, and as they seek to be faithful in witnessing of Jesus Christ, we see that the word of the Lord begins to increase. Now, at first, it's only talked to with the Jews, but that won't last. Because in verse 20, we see that some other men came from this place called Cyprus and Cyrene. These unnamed, ordinary Christians take the gospel to Phoenicia, to Cyprus, and Antioch. These aren't super Christians, as far as we know. There's no name of who they are. These are just ordinary men and women to spread 
the good news of Jesus Christ. And we pray ourselves that our witness would be faithful and we let God be the one who makes it effective. It's through the preaching of God's word that God calls people to himself. It's God's people going out declaring, as Ephesians 3, 8 says, the unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ, which means what? You keep digging and you never hit the bottom. And we see in verse 21 that the hand of the Lord was on these unnamed people. It's God who works as he draws people to himself. And what an amazing reminder of God's power in growing his church. Remember this, it is not human wisdom or skill that grows God's church. It's not based upon the music style or church programs. Those are all greats, by the way. But true church growth comes through the power of God and depends upon that. It's tempting to depend upon our own wisdom, on what we think should happen, and completely neglect the idea that this is Christ's church and he will grow it. And the outcome of this is that a great number who believe turn to the Lord through this faithful witness. So there is a human response when someone hears the gospel. There is. The gospel isn't just information. It is a call to obedience. And we saw that five times today. We are supposed to do something when we hear this good news. We are to repent, which means to agree with God that we are sinners and renounce our sins and turn our back on that old way and to believe, which means to to rest, to put all of our confidence, to lean heavily, completely in the person of Jesus Christ as our substitutionary death that we deserve, that rescued us from hell. And we saw those five people declaring that today. Repentance and faith are essential requirements for salvation. Baptism is just the outward expression of turning to Jesus as Savior and Lord. And we see that as the outcome of this faithful witness, God makes it effective by bringing a great number of people. And this gives us a flashback to at the beginning of Acts as Luke gives an account of Peter's first sermon. And with Peter's first sermon, 3,000 people God saves. Right? As a preacher, a little jealous. Well, that's okay. The job is to be faithful. Let God be the effective. So what could happen, do you think, if each of us faithfully engage in evangelism in a prayerful manner? What if ordinary people like you and I not only just pray that God would save people, but we actually go out with faithfulness with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And you may just see God bless those efforts and begin to draw men and women to himself. Look, if the work of evangelism is not committed to God in prayer, you're not going to see how God is working because your heart hasn't been tuned to that. And when we think about the gospel, the task of proclaiming, it does bring urgency, doesn't it? And necessity. It's no different now as it was 2,000 years ago with the apostles. Because the gospel makes us who believe the gospel and brings another question to our mind. 
Do you believe this is a dying world and that it's moving at a breakneck speed to a lost eternity? If it be the person sitting across from you who doesn't know Jesus or the person on the other side of the world, do you believe that you know the solution to that plight? And here's the thing. God could and does save people without us. I was reminded of that not that long ago when I was talking to a young man. I'm like listening to his story of how God saved him. And I'm looking at him going, wait a second. Nobody came to you? You just like picked up the Bible and started reading it? Yeah. Well, isn't that, like that deflates the ego. (laughs) But he does choose us to do this. And that's a blessing. That's not a curse. That's a blessing. And God is the one who calls us and commands us to evangelize. But he's the one who makes our faithful witness effective. So do you believe that God has more of his own in this city? How about other parts of this country? How about this world? Do you believe they need to hear the gospel? Do you believe that the situation is dire? Then let us go. Just like these ordinary people who went to Antioch. Go to the neighbor across the street, to the fellow student, to the co-worker, to the other mom at the playground, to the other senior, seniors playing pickleball. Because I know that's a major thing these days. I don't get it, but, you know. Let us go to the ends of the earth. Let us go. And as we faithfully engage in evangelism with prayfulness, we will see the grace of God at work because now our eyes are open to seeing him at work. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I dare you to pray what Jesus calls us to pray. I dare you. He says in Matthew 9, 37 to 38, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. You know what happens when you start praying this? Because this happened to me. This brought me conviction and rebuke and desire and a heart for the lost. May our witness be faithful and effective. May all of the gospel-preaching churches in London have faithful and effective witnesses. And not just in London, but the rest of this country, because our country desperately needs Jesus. And also this world, because this world desperately needs Jesus. The harvest is plentiful. And these men that we see here preached in Antioch were ordinary men seeking to be faithful with the message about Jesus. So God's hand is at work through the faithful ministries and makes it effective. But in verses 22 to 24, we see the encouraging the church, the importance of encouraging the church. In verse 22, the church in Jerusalem hears about what is happening. So they send this man whose his name literally means son of encourager. That's his nickname. It's not even his real name. I wish I had a nickname like that. I get Nate. (laughs) But he means encourager. What an amazing thing. And when Barnabas arrives, he looks around, and in verse 23, he saw the grace of God. It is the triune God who accomplishes salvation, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working together to do what none of us has the power to do. That's what grace means. That is the grace of God. But let's not forget that not only does God accomplish salvation, he also accomplished the means of that. 
God did not only choose who he will save, but he also brought people to proclaim it. When God calls someone, God calls also someone to go and evangelize. To evangelize, as Acts 26 says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I've been using this word evangelism. What does that mean? It's speaking the truth that is about the gospel. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins and rose again. Or not again, he rose from the dead. Christ died. Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, the promised one that we heard about in the prophets from long ago, came, born of the Virgin Mary, grew up, and died on a horrific Roman cross. And he died for someone. He died for his people. He died for those who have sinned against him. And sin is like... I, every time we try to describe sin, it always seems to fall short. The reality is God is holy and we've sinned against him. Everything we deserve, the only thing we deserve for a bunch of people in North America who really complain about everything and not having so much, the only thing that we deserve is hell because we've sinned against a holy God. But the gospel doesn't end there. Christ died for our sins, meaning that Christ paid the substitutionary death for that sin so that if anyone confesses with Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, God doesn't look at them with their sin, but through Christ's perfect righteousness. So, and he rose from the dead, meaning that it's been paid. It's been approved. Do you feel the urgency when you think about the gospel? In two ways, either you believe it and out of love for the lost you want others to know or you don't believe it, in which case there's an urgency of eternal consequences that you need to answer to. Preferably now while there's still time. But belief shows itself in life as well. So what are the Christians did in Antioch? God calls these Christians to preach the gospel to the people who were drawing. And God did something amazing in their faithful evangelism. And God blessed their efforts by adding to the church. And Barnabas' reaction wasn't like, how dare this happen without me? It was, he was glad. Oh, this didn't happen in my church. He was glad. Imagine if someone other than the someone whose nickname literally meant encourager showed up. What if it was that other group that we saw a couple of weeks ago that were kind of more stuck on their traditions rather than understanding what God is doing? Without hesitation, Barnabas rejoices when he hears of what God has done in the lives of these believers. But he isn't just glad. There's also a next step there. And he exhorts them. He's encouraged. He's cheering them on that they would remain faithful to keep on to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So Barnabas is encouraging these young believers to continually seek to deepen their relationship with the one who has saved them to continue to teach them all that God has commanded, 
Barnabas is cheering them on to, to remain faithful with steadfast purpose, to persevere in faith, to resist temptation, and to endure trials and tribulations that may come their way. He's reminding them of that their salvation is not based on their own efforts or works, but on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that we are called to follow him faithfully until the end. And he does this, and it says why in verse 24. Because he was a good man. And then it defines that further. Because, you know, what is good? Because he's full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. It was the work of the Holy Spirit that enables Barnabas to see and to trust in the grace of God that made him a good man. See, Barnabas is described the same way that Stephen in Acts 6 is described. And as I'm reading this and studying it, all I can think about in my prayer is like, Lord, I really want to be like Barnabas. Just an ordinary man, faithful, encourager, full of the spirit and faith. He was a genuine and sincere, and he loved the Lord with all of his hearts. So let me ask you this. I've asked myself this already this week, and I've been praying accordingly, repenting accordingly. But let me ask you this. Are you an encourager by temperament? Is that who you are? Are you the one of those people who's always lobbing grenades from the sidelines? Or are you earnestly seeking the growth of the church? Like, ponder that. Maybe even ask a close friend. Ponder that. Because I wonder what would have happened if a different type of person went up to Antioch other than Barnabas. We aren't talking about flattery, right? He's not giving them flattery. He's not trying to make them feel good about something they did. We see the criteria of encouragement here. But are you one who is a good person because you are so full of the Spirit and of faith? See, the Jerusalem church sends Barnabas to be a partner with this new church in this new city to be an encouragement to them, to spur them on. This encouragement is not just a cheering on, but a call to be faithful to what has been taught. But here's the question. How can you be faithful to what you've been taught if you don't know what's been taught? Right? Which leads to that next point in verses 25 to 26, the teaching of the church. See, in Barnabas' encouragement, he also seeks to teach the church so that they can remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. It's not like I went up to someone and said, hey, Ben, stay strong and just walk away. That, that would, that's dumb. Now, if I went up to Ben and said, hey, stay strong, stay faithful. Let me walk with you. Let me teach you. Let me cry with you. Let me laugh with you. Let me do these things with you. That's different, isn't it? So he comes along, and it's, and it's hard, if not impossible, to be faithful to something that you don't exactly know. So Barnabas, his next thing in his mind is, oh, I can't just cheer them on. I, I need to teach them. So Barnabas goes to Tarsus and looks for this guy named Saul. 
And Barnabas is one of those types of people that sees potential in others. This is why he's an encourager. He sees the gifts and the passions of Paul or Saul to teach the Bible. So he goes to get him and he enlists Saul to ground the new believer's faith in the word of God. This is the beginning of a wonderful partnership and friendship that we will begin to see kind of come out in Acts. And what's really cool about Barnabas looking for Saul is that he's recognizing something about himself. He knew that the church was in need of gifts that he didn't really have himself. So he goes out and he finds someone who has them. He was willing to say that somebody else has, could do a better job than I could at this. And for a whole year, the two of them took the time to make sure that the Christians knew God's word. In verse 26, that their faith wasn't rooted in a heresy or opinion or feelings, but God's word and what God has to say. And this is what discipleship is. When Jesus said to teach them and to observe all that I commanded, it meant that there was an ongoing process of maturing in the faith that was rooted in knowing who God is as he has shown himself in his word. See, the, cho- the church's job isn't done and stops with the preaching of the gospel, but continues to teach those who God has saved, encouraging them to mature in Christ. Because a disciple is a forgiven sinner who is learning Christ in repentance and faith. And what is an amazing partnership that we see between Barnabas and Saul is this fulfillment and seeking to be faithful to the Great Commission. Are you the type of person that's encouraging people in their faith? Do you have close enough relationships with your brothers and sisters here at Knollwood to do that? See, the fact that we had these baptisms is because people continue to walk with these people. But the job doesn't stop even at this. We continue to walk with them. But it was parents being faithful. It's youth leaders. It's friends. In some of those cases, they're school teachers who are faithfully walking with these people. And we seek to be encouraged, encourage them by teaching. We encourage the adults to be baptized, to take that next step by partnering in church membership and then continuing to, join, to, continuing to grow by joining a group that will walk with you in your faith. And I continue to encourage people to do that. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And it was here, right now, at this moment, in Acts chapter 11, that no longer are Christians considered a sect of Judaism, but they are their own. They're different. There's something new that God has created. And God brought ordinary people to preach the gospel. God then brings the right person to encourage that church. And through that encouragement, along with the partnering with a guy named Saul, teach this young church so that they may know what it means to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. The outcome of this is immediate, by the way. You see it right here. And it begs the question, is there anything outside of God's purpose and design? Think about this section, how it opens up with persecution. How the church has scattered from left to right, north and south, east and west. It's going, it's going everywhere. And it goes to this town, this city called Antioch. 
all because of this persecution that happens. And God uses these ordinary people to go preach the gospel to this town. And now in verse 27, we see that this man, this prophet, came down from Jerusalem. And he goes and he tells them about this great famine that's going to happen. And he tells of that famine that will happen in this place called Jerusalem, which actually historically happened. And we see in both biblical and even non-biblical sources that a famine did actually happen during the reign of Claudius in the mid-first century. A massive flood comes in up the Nile River in A.D. 45 and destroys a lot of the grain harvest that would have been in Egypt. And Egypt at that time was the grain basin of the world which caused grain prices to soar throughout the Roman Empire and famine spread to Judea. These things actually happened. In verse 29, the disciples, so the Christians, determined every one according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. As Barnabas and Saul continued to walk with these new Christians, the fruits of that becomes evident immediately. See, don't get caught up in the whole prophecy thing, in Agabus, because then you would be missing the points. The significance of Agabus' prophecy is that it motivates the Christians in Antioch to help their fellow believers in Judea. So a famine happens. And think about this. How easy would it have been for this young church to start hoarding things for themselves in light of this news? Oh, there's a famine coming? Because remember, the prophecy was just that there was a famine that was coming, not to do something about it. What would you have done? I would have started hoarding things. I've been watching this show called Preppers. It's not playing well with my mind. All I want to do is hoard canned goods. And toilet paper. (laughs) But you see, what would have happened? Everyone, according to their ability, gave relief immediately to their brothers and sisters. They saw a church that was going to be in need, and they rallied. Ordinary people being used by God to do extraordinary things. You know, they say that we're kind of in this economic downturn. At least this is what my accountant friends keep telling me here. Money is getting tight. It is. It's a reality. And some churches, they may need to start cutting budgets. But let me ask you this. What does the church do when economic hardships come to its own door? Will missionary work go? Will poverty happen? Poverty relief be the first to go? What, what happens? The church in Antioch had their eyes so fixed on Jesus and their generosity that comes out of that grace begins to permeate this. They didn't ask how much do they need because that would have just been an excuse to give the bare minimum, right? If someone says, hey, can you spot me some money? My answer to them is, well, how much do you need? Five bucks. Yeah, sure, I could give you five bucks. 
They asked how they can be a blessing to the lives of their brothers and sisters. They gave according to his ability, as Acts says. And this was a church that wanted to demonstrate their love as a community, and they did it with generosity. And this is the practical outflowing of the grace that Barnabas has been seeing. There's an immediate change of priorities in the lives of those who have experienced God's grace. And they gather all of this money and they send it with Paul and Barnabas and they, and they give it to deliver aid to Jerusalem. And we see the beginning of a missionary movement happening right now. Not only will Paul get money and bring it to Jerusalem, but he will also bring the gospel to all of the Mediterranean area as far as Spain, declaring the good news of Jesus Christ coming out of this moment. No wood. I want to be a sending church, raising up men and women who will go across the street and across the world. See, as a local church, we aren't a kingdom unto our own. We are part of God's kingdom, and we know this. We know this. We've been blessed by other churches, have we not? If it wasn't for other churches of like-mindedness within the city, we would be struggling. We know we've been blessed. So let us be just as generous to other people. Let us be generous to other churches. Let us be generous with missions so that the gospel may go forth. Let us be generous with churches here in London, in Canada, and throughout the world. And I pray that we can be the same to others as partners in the gospel have been to us because each one of us has a growing understanding of the grace God has given us. So what, you may ask. And what I find amazing about this account is that we have unnamed ordinary people going to preach the gospel that Christ died for our sins and rose again to a group of people in one of the biggest cities in the Roman Empire, and we have no idea who they are. And God's word doesn't say who they are, but the result was a church established in the third largest city in the Roman Empire where God used that to even further the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And the outcome was a generosity in this one local church that would help the church in Jerusalem. See, God uses ordinary believers in the task of evangelism, discipleship, and gospel partnership. And we, he uses people like you and, and me in our weaknesses, in your insecurity, in your faults, in your perceived inabilities, but in your faithfulness to bring about an effective witness that will draw people to himself. See, God uses ordinary people in the task of evangelism, discipleship, and part, gospel partnership. He uses ordinary people to encourage the church to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Our lives are full of ordinary people that God used for his glory and our good. Let us be faithful. In D.A. Carson's book that talks about his dad, he goes on to say this. I, D.A. Carson, went looking for my dad after the morning service to entice him to come and play the piano while the rest of us sang and played instruments. He was not... He was not where he usually was. I found him in his study, the door not quite closed. He was on his knees in front of his big chair, tears streaming down his face, 
as he interceded with God for the handful of people to whom he had just preached. I remember some of their names to this day. An ordinary man on his knees after faithfully preaching that God, a whole bunch of people become saved. Praise God. But it's not new. This will continue to happen over and over and over again in the book of Acts, and it still continues today. We saw that this morning. Again and again, believers will take the word of God to those around us and to the ends of the earth. There's an amazing evangelistic fervor that is characterized in the early church. It should be ours, too. Let us pray. Lord, 